The best investment you will ever make. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of Sunday, October 10th, 2021 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. The lie of the devil is that we can have the good life without God. Jesus exposed this lie by his faithful obedience. Reverend David Pelegi tells us that we also expose Satan's lie when we live like Jesus. Jesus called us to give to the poor and needy. When we do, we not only combat the devil, but we proclaim the merciful, generous character of God. We also invest in our eternal future. Jesus called the rich young ruler to radically trust God with his wealth, but he was unwilling. Are we ready to trust God with our money? The first appointed reading is from the prophet Amos, beginning in the fifth chapter at the sixth verse. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. There are those who hate the ones who uphold justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12 to 16. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Jesus, the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace 
with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Please stand as we hear our King, the King Messiah, teach us through the the good news according to Mark. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, we stand or sit before you. We pray that uh, your word this evening will be powerful. Lord, we always want your blessings. We always want your encouragement and your guidance. And Lord, we're brave enough to say this evening, Lord, we ask that uh, indeed your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword would challenge us, help us to put our priorities in order, and to deepen our commitment to your Son and, Lord, our willingness to follow him with the radical, radical willingness, Lord, to bulldoze anything it gets in the way of that relationship. 
Lord, we pray that you'll give us grace and courage. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So two weeks ago, before um, Aaron got to the privilege of speaking on uh, Adam and Eve and the idyllic picnic they were having in the garden, we commemorated, celebrated a feast day, the feast of St. Michael and all angels. Actually, I think in, in the Anglican tradition, it's actually Michael and all angels. And we read from Revelation chapter 12, and we talked about Michael uh, throwing Satan out of heaven, down to earth, and how the combat, the spiritual war, left the heavenlies and came to planet earth, and uh, the saints became directly involved in that conflict. And it says, if you remember in Revelation 12, that they defeated the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their, or the, sorry, that's, and the, they defeated the devil by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus there, that phrase, didn't exactly mean that they went around testifying, yes, saying uh, how Jesus did this for them or Jesus did that. And that is not a bad thing to do. But the testimony of Jesus, yes, was living a life, yes, in imitation of Jesus, valuing what he valued, being disciples. And in the process, what is it about living a, a life of faithful obedience or faithful discipleship that defeats the devil? It exposes the lie. The devil is a liar. That's his big thing. That's his weapon. That's how he fools us and fools the human family generation after generation. And so to expose the lie, it's not only about apologetics. It's not only about your blog on the Internet, which is going to show why everybody else is wrong who doesn't believe in Jesus. Exposing the lie means that we have to do the truth. Now, oftentimes as Christians, especially in the Western Protestant tradition, we talk about knowing the truth, having the truth. But there are many instances in the Bible, especially in the book of John and the epistles of John, in which the emphasis is on doing the truth. We like to talk about love, yes, but of course the Bible talks about what love does. That's 1 Corinthians 13. We love to talk about faith, but 1 Corinthians, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what faith does. So we are surrounded by lies. We're surrounded by deception. And that lie has to be exposed. That lie has to be exposed. And I'd like to maybe continue that theme and be a little more practical and a little more pointed because I think there's something in the gospel passage that um, really helps 
us uh, and others uh, expose that lie, or you might say to do the truth. And of course, our passage is uh, a story within a story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, as he is going from the region of Caesarea Philippi, he's been transfigured. Uh, the disciples, especially led by Peter, have all said, you are the Messiah. But they don't have a clue what that means. Yeah, we know you're the one. But what exactly does a Messiah do? At least the way Jesus understands it, they are lost and as Jesus approaches Jerusalem yeah, and comes to his death and resurrection, he has to teach yes, his disciples yes, what the Messianic agenda is. Not only what is the Messianic agenda, but what is the character of God? And in what way, yes, in what way does the universe really work? And how does God rule? And what is his reality? Because my dear friends, just like those disciples, we're confused. That would be the nice way to put it. Or we're deceived. would probably be more realistic. And many of us wonder, you know, or we observe, yeah, this, the world is pretty rotten. You know, is there fairness in the universe, is there justice? You know, is goodness ever rewarded? Is evil ever he held to account? Yes. Do greedy people always get to eat first and always get the vaccine first? Yes. And uh, why is it that people who use force and violence, yes, seem to get what they want? Yes. Doesn't it seem strange that uh, meekness or reconciliation or building bridges with people maybe doesn't work at all? Yeah. And is this world really just about self-interest? And is the only way to flourish in the world, the only way to flourish in this life, the only way to have the good life, you know, I've got to go out and, and, and take care of number one. Yes, that's the world is askew. And many people can't see an alternative. They don't see the alternative of the kingdom of God. And here Jesus finds, uh, is approached by the so-called rich young ruler. The rich young ruler shows impiety. Jesus uh, he asks for eternal life, and uh, Jesus quizzes him about the commandments, surely based on the verse in Leviticus 18.3, in which God says to Israel, if you keep these commandments, you will live. Yes, so life, eternal life is connected to the keeping of the commandments. And Jesus asks not the commandments that he quizzes this young man about, are the ones that uh, are related to loving his neighbor. And that guy is, yes, 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 right? And, of course, he keeps the mitzvot. 
he keeps the rules, which is certainly not a bad thing. And yet at the same time, something is missing. Something is seriously missing in his life. And Jesus has a prescription for him. He has some medicine that the young man can't take because it's too bitter or too radical. And that medicine is to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Now that whole concept of giving alms, giving to the poor, treasures in heaven can easily be dismissed by us as something not very important. And there are many in our community who will look at um, someone like Bill Gates, who gives away a huge amount of money, and whose foundation, I'm sure, does a lot of good. And we will easily dismiss this. And you know what? We'll say, it's just someone trying to... It's social justice. That's what it is. It's social justice and social justice that has an end in itself. And maybe that's a fair critique. So Bill Gates and all those people are easily, can easily be dismissed. And then we will think about, um, or we'll be influenced indirectly. We don't necessarily associate, we'll think about the German philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And Kant taught, you know, if you give anything away, if you give any gift and you expect something in return, well, that's not legitimate. And uh, that's certainly not, you know, to be, that's not to be considered, you know, an authentic, selfless gift. And then there's the issue of the Protestant Reformation. And the reformers were really suspicious of almsgiving because they said it smells like works righteousness. You know, you have some money and you're going to give it away and somehow that's going to appease God. And they taught, on the whole, they said, yes, treasures in heaven, giving alms, that can be an expression of our faith. That can be, you know, it's sort of an option. You can take it or you can, or you can leave it. The critique of that, by the way, is who gave you the money in the first place? The money comes from God. So you're only giving back to God what God gave to you. So to think, oh, uh, you know, I'm somehow working my way to heaven with my money, you know, might not uh, withstand, you know, some, uh, some scrutiny. And I would suggest that all of these things in which we so easily, all these excuses which we use to so easily dismiss, attending to the poor and being generous, you know, are faulty. Because the act of giving money to the poor who can't repay, who cannot repay, is actually an act of faith. It's, an act, it's faith itself in action. 
And the Jewish people, and later Christians, began to understand that giving and generosity, especially to those who are poor or needy or oppressed, whatever it may be, was an act of devotion, was an act of devotion, yes, that came with great blessings and great rewards. Jesus himself says, give, and you will have treasures in heaven. And the understanding that develops uh, in what, unfortunately, we call the intertestamental period, but in the late Second Temple period, uh, is, is uh, you might say, germinated by Proverbs 19, Proverbs 19, 17. He who was kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will reward him for what he has done. Now, people didn't take this metaphorically or allegorically. They took this literally, including Jesus. And based on other scriptures, we don't have time, uh, they began to understand that when one <coughs> gave to charity and gave to the poor, probably they included the temple in this, when, when one gave in this way, one was actually lending to God himself. And who, I mean, think of it. Every time you either loan money or you put money uh, in a startup or you buy stock, we all wonder, am I going to get that money back? Is this a good investment? And of course, people stay up nights um, and, uh, or, or have sleepless nights worrying about, you know, what the New York Stock Exchange is doing and the price of real estate and whether the housing bubble in China is going to bring the whole world into recession. And there's worry, worry. And yes, I got to get on my, open my, the latest app on my phone and buy, sell, trade. I've got to protect my investments. And inflation is coming. And what is it going to do? Brothers and sisters, here's a sure investment. Now, I'm telling you, preachers should never give financial advice. That's why they're preachers. Well, there are a few who drive BMWs and have private jets. God bless them. They've figured out a way to make the system work for them. But I'll tell, I will give you some financial advice. Yes, invest in the poor because the Lord will repay. Yeah, God is better than Warren Buffett. And God is better than owning stock with Tim Cook and Apple or Google. Yes, or the Federal Reserve. May the Lord have mercy on them as they continue to print money. Yes, world without end. Amen. God is the one who guarantees the loan. You will never, we will never get, most likely get it back from the people that we give to. But God himself will ensure that we get, we, we get a return on our investment. And so Jewish people understand that we have something like, again, Jesus, the early church, 
the early church fathers all understand that we have something like a 401k in heaven, or we have a retirement account with the Shanghai Hong Kong Bank. Can we trust them, Sherry? Should we trust them? Okay, well, I don't, we'll talk about that later. And when we give to the poor, and by the way, I would say, maybe I'll point out later, when we invest in the gospel, yes, we put money in that account. And that requires trust, and it requires faith. And that's what was lacking in the rich young ruler. Yes, he could do the rules. He could play by the game. But ultimately, he wasn't sure whether he could trust God at the end. And so often, or more often than not, the place, that we're, the place where we're tested is at the place where we're most vulnerable with our money. And by the way, you don't have to be rich, yes, to be presented with a test. You can be quite poor, or your resources can be quite meager. Yes, but the issue is, can we, re- can we, can we trust the Lord? And there's the issue of reward in all of this. Lay up treasures and give to the poor so that you can have treasures in heaven. But wait a minute. I, I thought we're not supposed to do things for a reward. Well, I would suggest that it should not be our main motivation. But that is a factor. It comes into the equation, you might say. And I think there are two things that we need to keep in mind. One, because we give, God's not necessarily obligated. And if you give God $100, don't say to him, okay, God, I've given you 100 I want 1000 transferred into my account in three days. Or otherwise, you know, you're not trustworthy. Or don't believe this nonsense of the faith preacher. You can write your own check with God. Just fill in the, fill in the amount. That's a gross abuse. But God is indeed generous, and he does reward. But I have to s- stress that God may reward us in this life. He may indeed not reward us at all and may reward our children and grandchildren. And surely, when we stand before him to give an account of our lives, we will reap the windfall, maybe with interest, of whatever we have deposited in our account. So ultimately, we will be rewarded. But you say, yes, but we shouldn't think of it. Jesus said... He said in Matthew chapter 6, he says, I want you to notice what he says. He says that when you pray, when you fast, uh, when you um, give to the needy, when you give alms, he says, you know, do it in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, right? A lot of times we give in a manipulative way, maybe to feel good about ourselves, to show everybody in the church maybe how righteous we are, 
maybe to, you know, garnish our reputation, uh, you might say improve our reputation a little bit. And we hope for some kind of reward. And Jesus says, of course, if you get your name on a plaque at the entrance of the church, you've been rewarded. But he says, if you do it in secret, God who sees will reward you. So there are rewards, but don't necessarily expect them all to be in this life. Some of them might be, and many may not. Many, many may not. And I like to just stress that this isn't just about self-interest or some kind of enlightened self-interest. I'll give to the poor. I'll give to the gospel. Somehow God will be good to me. What it shows is that in God's economy, that in the way that God rules and reigns over people who submit to him, yes, there is, a, there is, a just, there is justice. Yes, there is fairness. There, will be, there is a reward. There will be a reward. Evil will be held to account just as goodness you know, is acknowledged and there's compensation for it. In the end, this, this whole thing about giving money, about giving alms, about being generous, especially to those who can't repay, yes, it is, you might say, the imitation of God. It is, it, we're doing what God himself does. Does he not give to us? Are we not poor beggars? What can we really ever repay him with? What do we deserve? Yes, but God yet, what does he do? He continually gives to us and gives to us and gives to us. And he asks us to do the same. He says, be holy as I am holy. And an important central part, a part of holiness is goodness. Yes, God is saying, be good like I'm good. And be generous. In Matthew, Jesus, to paraphrase, says, let there be no end to your goodness. At the end of Matthew 5. So in the end, yes, we get a reward. But in the end, it's about God. It's about God, and it exposes the big lie of our age, the big, fat, stinking lie that dominates much of the world, at least much of the Western world. And you know what that lie is? It's sort of unprecedented in all of human history. It's a form, it's a pernicious form of secular humanism that says, I want to do well, and I want to flourish, and I want to have authentic relationships and a meaningful career, and I want to have uh, good sex and eat good food and travel and do this and do that. But again, I've got to look after number one. I have to be the person that makes all this happen. You know, and the, the lie of the devil is that uh, we can have the good life without God. First of all, without God, we don't even know what the good life is. We don't even know how to define it. Yes? We can get Pentecostal here. as people to say, without really the, the life and teaching of Jesus, I would say. We, don't, we have no, understand, no real comprehension of what the so-called good life may be. 
Yeah. Um, and what's, what's the, the alternative? The alternative is that God himself wants us, wants us as human beings to flourish. And God wants our well-being. And God wants to bless us because is that not the narrative in Genesis? As Aaron reminded us last week, it is good. Creation is good. God's created order is good. But how do we, how do we come to the place of flourishing? How do we come to the place of prosperity or well-being or blessing? Yes, it comes through. It comes when we give, right? Self-giving. It doesn't come through self-absorption. It doesn't really come through self-promotion. It comes when we give ourselves. And isn't that the message of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, teaching his disciples? Disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. It's me. Or arguing, or certainly they were shocked, you know, when Jesus tells this rich young ruler, give it all away. Yeah. Give it all away. Don't, um, you know, don't worry, you know, about your, about your future. Take a risk, Jesus says. That's the way that, that's the way the lie is exposed. And money, giving alms, especially to the poor, is very, it's, it's very specific. But yet, again, it shows something about God's character. And it tells us that the world, the world that we see around us, that operates through greed or violence, yes, or naked self-interest, isn't God's world. And the place where God rules and reigns, a different economy is in place. And a different set of rules and a different set of standards and a different set of expectations. And that's what needs to be exposed. And not only do we have to expose it mentally, yes, it needs to be something that we absorb, yes, into our hearts. Peter and those disciples, they knew Jesus was the Messiah, but they had no idea what it meant, what the messianic agenda was, or what it meant to give oneself. That was somehow lost on them. Let's say one more thing, and the importance of all this. It's not, this is not only something we do for ourselves and do in our community. This is an essential part of our evangelical witness. Now, in the ancient Roman world, people used to give plenty of money to plenty of causes. And if you were rich... You would build a bathhouse, you know, for the, the city. Or you might, you know, have some statues carved of uh, the emperor or the governor of the city. And, of course, you'd put your name on these things. You might build a hippodrome if, you're we- if you were wealthy enough. Judaism and Christianity comes along and says, forget all that. What we need to do instead is to build an orphanage 
and later Christians were involved in building hospitals. And we need to uh, supply food for those people who are hungry because those who are poor are made in the image of God. And we understand that God himself will repay us. And so it becomes an essential part of every community. I think in many churches what happens is, oh, we'll have a little ministry to the poor. We'll do some cans, we'll do this, and it becomes almost a side option. Or it becomes something that's not quite so important and so essential. Because after all, people say, it's the social gospel, and we can't preach the social gospel. We've got to preach the evangelical gospel. My dear friends, this is about God, who God is, yes, who Jesus is, yes, that in a risky yet responsible, let me emphasize responsible, giving of ourselves to others, giving our finances, yes, giving ourselves in community or in marriage or in family, whatever it may be. Yeah. That's where we come to know another person, and that's where we will come to reflect yeah, the character of God to those around us. Peter Brown, who I like very much, who's a famous historian, who's written lots of books about the early, early Christian period, uh, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, uh, in one of his books on the making, I think it was the making of late antiquity, he says something really interesting. He says, in the third century, Christianity grew like wildfire. And why did it grow? He said, well, from his observation, and he's a very uh, serious historian, he said there were two factors. He said the early Christians, yes, were seen to have power over the demonic. They were seen to have power over demons. Where you have widespread immorality and widespread idolatry, you have enormous amounts of demonic activity. That was the Roman Empire. That, by the way, is many of our countries are returning uh, to that unfortunate state. But secondly, they fed the poor. They collected, um, they raised orphans, children who were left outside to die because a family uh, did not want another girl or uh, their latest child had some deformity. Because they were made in the image of God, Christians would pick them up and raise them as their own children rather than allow them to die from you know, exposure to the weather or be eaten by wild animals. And this impressed people. It impressed people because the character of God and of his son, Jesus, was being lived out and revealed. And there's an alternative. The alternative is to the, to, to the lie you know, that uh, Satan presents us. You know, I could say the same thing we talked about investing in the poor. And of course, this, this can be very tricky, and, we have, and it has to be done in a wise way. 
But we need to give up this idea that somehow it should not be central to every Christian community. And, nor, and it should be an important part of the life of every believer. Something that we need to take very seriously. Could say this about investing in the gospel. Yes. Um, but we'll save that for another time. So brothers and sisters, be generous. Invest in your heavenly bank account. Yes. And be aware that when we do so, we are doing doing something that exposes the lies of the devil. And we are doing the truth. And that, as we said two weeks ago, is the essential nature of what spiritual warfare is about. So, Father in heaven, we pray, we pray that each one of us will take seriously the teaching of your son Jesus and the challenge Not only do we want a reward for being generous to those who are in need, but Lord, we want to be witnesses of your good good creation, of your mercy. And Lord, and the alternative, even counterintuitive way in which you do things in this world. The way in which... uh, Charity and love actually triumph at the end of the day. And not force or brutality or self-interest. Lord, we pray that um, all these things you will uh, enable us to do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.